Alright, we are going to continue on in soteriology. Jim, do you know what soteriology means? No. I thought you did. Oh. <laughs> gotcha. Who can remind us what soteriology is about? Andy. It's the study of the Savior. Uh, right. Yeah, study of salvation. salvation. Yeah. salvation. We went through the study of the Savior, I guess, already. Yeah. What was that? Oh, sorry, Christology. Type? Yeah, Christology. Good. And yeah, something LDS saying the Savior. <laughs> yeah, well, he's Just our Savior. Just for the record, <laughs> Let it be known. Let it be known. All right, so yeah, we were looking at the work of the Savior in salvation in the study of soteriology. So um, we'll go ahead and take a peek at that. Let's open up in prayer before we get into that. Lord, we thank you that you are the Savior, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the the one who the one who saves us from our sins and has set us apart and and redeemed us. God, we thank you for your work on the cross, your work in the resurrection, and your work in our lives. We pray that as we look into this uh, often mysterious doctrine of salvation, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight, that we would be in awe and amazement of you and the fact that you would choose to to save us, that you would choose to, to set us apart as your own. God, move in our, our hearts and our minds, and I pray that you would be uh, glorified this morning and um, lifted up in our hearts. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Uh, we're talking about election, predestination this morning. I really doubt we'll get to adoption and security. But there, these are really simple doctrinal truths, right, that everybody has figured out and um, wrapped up in a nice pretty bow. So shouldn't be any issue for us to get through election and predestination today and have a complete, firm grasp on it, right? Obviously... Speaking with. Has he always been the sarcastic? A little bit of sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. Always. Yeah. So I think we need to realize, even from the, the onset, that these are indeed mysterious truths and they have been debated for millennia and that's okay. Um, just like we mentioned the last two weeks, there's a spectrum and we don't want to fall off on one side or another. It's too far. Um, away from uh, what is orthodox, what is biblical teaching. But we have to also recognize that there are going to be variations of understanding within uh, the, the true Christian church, the worldwide church of, of God. And we need to make sure that we have um, room for people who have differing understandings. But we're going to teach it the way that we see and understand it and do our best to support it biblically. So, by where review, Jesus is the only way to heaven. We looked at John 10, how he is the door, how he is a good shepherd. Looked at John 14, how he explicitly says he is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. Uh, and that is uh, the, the foundation of our soteriology, that our salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. We are justified on the basis of faith alone. Because it is by faith that we as sinners are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. By grace through faith we are rendered completely innocent by God. 
we looked at that word imputed last week, how his grace is given to us. It's credited to our account. It's not infused with any righteousness of our own. We have no righteousness of our own. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So we need the imputed righteousness of Christ that he places on our account. Different viewpoints concerning um, the depravity of man, who we are as as fallen men, and uh, subsequently the the degree of saving that we need and the nature of salvation. We talked about Pelagianism, that humans are born into a state of innocence and can obey God, that Adam only gives us a bad example. We don't hold to Pelagianism. This is a different view that thinks that man has the ability to do good and we need to veer away from Adam's bad example, but his sin has no effect on us. Semi-Pelagianism says that humans are born slanted towards sin, but that they can cooperate with God, that Adam's sin was not imputed towards us, so that we have a a tendency towards sin, but not an imputed sin nature. And then Calvinism, or Augustinianism, or Paulineism, right? Um, You can go back farther to Calvin. Uh, We've talked about how it's unfortunate that we use men like Pelagius or Calvin or Augustine or August. A couple different ways to say it, but um, that we use these men to to identify the theology that they they espouse. But that's the best way to do it. And um, really... Calvinism or Augustinianism says that humans are born completely depraved, enemies of God and legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effect. So just as Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer, credited to the account of the believer, Adam's sin is imputed to every human being who is a descendant of Adam. Andy? Are there actual denominations of Pelagianism? Um, yeah, I'm not sure which one specifically, but... I believe so. And I think there are certainly individuals that hold a Pelagian theology, even if um, they don't understand it and articulate it that way. All right. Speaking to election. Election comes from the word eklego, which just means to choose. Literally means to speak out. I think those are a couple of blanks in your hand out there. To speak out. There are two passages that most clearly speak of God's election of individuals to salvation in Christ. You guys know what those passages might be off the top of your head? Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. What did you say? I said Romans 8. Atta boy. Oh, you're looking at your notes. Good job. Way to use your notes, Walker. Proud of you. Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. That's where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning. We need to remember basic hermeneutics. Hermeneutics just means the way that we approach the text or Bible study method. Um, We want to commit to understanding the text. Um, Again, we have a lot of preconceived ideas, a lot of presuppositions that we bring with us to the text whenever we encounter any Bible passage. And so we want to do our best to look at these specific passages and see what they say in context about God's election, um, doing our best to set aside any preconceived ideas that might slant the way that we look at the text. 
And then again, also just realizing that God is an absolute eternal being who is unsearchable, unfathomable, and we are marred by our sin and in, in our whole being, not just our ability to, to sin physically or mentally or uh, verbally, but in our ability to understand, it's also marred by sin. So we need to approach this deep understanding with the idea that we will never fully be able to grasp it. All right, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, and we'll look at that together. Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30, commonly known as the golden chain of redemption. It's a great passage. And before we get there, I think I'll read 31, because it's kind of the, the linchpin of this whole passage. 31 kind of ties together... Uh, verses 28 through 39 at the end of the chapter. 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great verse that uh, can really comfort us at all points in our our Christian walk. But um, looking back at 28 through 30, it's talking about um, past things and how we are in Christ. And then... Going forward from 32 to 39, it's talking about things that are not able to take us out of Christ. So how we got to Christ is before 31. 31 says, we are in Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from God. And 32 and following goes through that. So can I get somebody to read 28 through 30 for us, please? Got it. Thanks. And we know that in all good things, God's work, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called those he called. Yep. He also called those he called. He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All right. Yeah, easy to get tripped up in there. Um, but yeah, lots of big words. We need to define those words and have a, a biblical understanding of them. What are the two qualifiers that are given for all things working together for the good of some people? Loving God. Okay. Being called. Being called. Yeah. So those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so we want to recognize from, from the get-go that God causes all things to work together. And so that all things, that's all encompassing, right? And that, again, should be a comfort for the believer that it's not just some things, it's not partial things, but God causes all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, those who love God. Um, So it's all encompassing. What we look at as good, what we look at as bad, and... um, it's only for a select group of people. It's for those who love God, those who are called, not for everybody. Um, there's, I can't remember where it's at, but talking about how Judas uh, would have been better for him had he not been born, right? Um, I saw somebody recently, I don't know if it was in this class, but that's a, a hard verse for Jehovah's Witnesses. It wasn't this class, it was a buddy. Um, because they think that they just believe in annihilationism. That after we die, we just go to the ground to um, 
to cease to exist. And I've talked with several Jehovah's Witnesses who have a difficult time with that verse because, of course, it would be better for, for Jesus, say, or for humanity, uh, hypothetically, had Judas never been born and betrayed Jesus. But to say that it would have been better for Judas had he never been born is um, that goes against their, their understanding that we just cease to exist. Annihilation um, is what we have to look forward to in death. And I don't know why I got there, but let's move on. <laughs> uh, how many active verbs are ascribed to man in this passage? Yeah, I think it. What do you see, Jim? Love. We love God. For those who. Us, that's an action on our part. Yeah, it's a, a verb, and it is a, an active verb um, in the Greek and translates that way into the English. Um, and we've talked about before why it is that we love God. We look at First John and uh, how we love God because he first loved us. Um, can I get somebody to look up Psalm 25.10? And somebody else, 1 Corinthians 2.9. All right. And this kind of ties into what we've been talking about with the uh, antinomian um, against law um, that we were talking about the last couple of weeks, that um, there's this, this free grace understanding of, of Jesus that we can come to Christ and just continue to live our lives however we want versus submitting to him as Lord and King of our life. So who has Psalm 2510? All right, we get that for us. Fans of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. All right, in that verse, we see another example of a condition, right? All of his, uh, what is it, all of his paths are truth to, to those who keep his commandments. All right, so not just for everybody, but there's a condition there that um, is associated with the, the love that we would have for him. And then First uh, Corinthians 2.9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. All right. So again, um, our love for God has impact on our our are standing with him, but our love for God cannot originate within ourselves because we are enemies of God. We are born hating God because we have a Calvinistic, Augustinian type view of our our sin and salvation. We understand that we are in Adam um, enemies of God, that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, through Adam all have sinned. We are falling in Adam. All right. Um, so we see a a chain here. This is called the golden chain of redemption for a reason because it links each one sub subsequently to the next um, action that God takes in the life of a believer. And we want to work backwards in this chain. So looking at 
verse 30, at the end of this passage, who are those who are glorified? Um, glorification comes at the end for believers, right? Um, and looking in the text, um, who are those who are glorified? Um, yeah, but before that in the text. He's just working back. Those he justifies and the ones who are glorified. Those who justify. Yep. Those who God justifies, he also glorifies. What does it mean to be justified? What's that? Made righteous. It'll be declared righteous, right? Yeah, it's a, a judicial um, sentence, I guess. Sentence isn't the right word because it has negative connotations. But it's judicial declaration of innocence, that we are declared righteous, that God says that person is righteous and just and good in my sight, even if we practically um, still carry sin with us. In his eyes, we are perfectly justified. And those who are justified are glorified. And again, justification, we realize as Christians, any Christian on any spectrum will say that not everybody is justified, right? That's universalism saying that every person is redeemed. Every person is going to go to heaven. That's not Christian in any sense of the word. Only a select group of people are going to be justified. Emphasis on select? Yes. <laughs> a select The word elect is hidden in the word select. Yes. <laughs> all right. So those who are justified will be glorified. And all of these are in the, the past tense, by the way, which is a great thing to, to know and to realize that it's all already been done, so to speak. Yes? That vertical line there is signifying how things happening in time versus in the future. So didn't want didn't to skip that part. So I think there's another line coming up. So earthly life spent on earth versus future. Yes. Okay. So yeah, there's a specific point in time when we who are in Christ have been justified, right? And again, we know that from God's perspective, we have already been glorified. And he can say with such certainty that it's taken place because um, the, the promises of God are, are certain. And he's not a man that he should lie. Um, he said that we will be glorified, and it is, it's so in his eyes. But we have to reach that state in this point in time. All right, called. It's getting a little bit more confusing, possibly, right? But again, working backwards, we see that those who he called... He also justified. Those who we justified, he also glorified. So we're working with this group of people that uh, will be glorified and that have been justified. And uh, those who are called are that same group of people who are justified. Um, let's look up a, a couple of verses on called and what it means to be called. Uh, can I get somebody to look at 2 Timothy 1.9? And then somebody else. Who's got Second Timothy? I got Second Timothy. All right. And who can get Second Thessalonians two thirteen? All right, Jerry. Thank you. You ready? Yep. Second Timothy 
1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. All right. So he called us according to his own purpose and his own grace, granted to us when? In Christ Jesus from all eternity. In Christ Jesus from all eternity. So it's not as if it took place at a certain point of time based upon something we did. God called us because he wanted to call us according to his purpose, according to his good pleasure, right? Second uh, Timothy 2, no, 1, 9. And then Jerry has Second Thessalonians 2, 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Yeah, that's a sounds like Paul right? heavy verse. <laughs> <laughs> that is Paul. It's a <laughs> deep theology. Second Thessalonians 2.13. Yeah. Yeah, we've been going through First Peter, and I've been reminding the, the youth that Peter said that Paul's hard to understand. So we're not alone if we have a hard time understanding Paul, either in Second Thessalonians or Romans. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to do so. But uh, if Paul or Peter has a hard time understanding, we should certainly expect to have a hard time ourselves. All right. And predestined. So these things, called and justified, that is a little bit different from predestined because they take place in time. Um, when we're talking about called there, we've made distinction in the past between the, the effectual call that we are called to salvation in a saving sense versus a general call where um, we've been commanded to go out and to preach the gospel to to all the nations, right? That's calling in a general sense. But those who respond, those who become children of God, those who are adopted that we'll look at next week, they have received the the effectual call of Christ. They have um, been moved and impacted and changed by the gospel. That's why our view of man's sinfulness is so important. Because if we take the view that we do that Sin has so affected man that he is unable to honor God with his faculties because of his depravity. A general call, the same call given to all people, would have no effect because no one would be able to respond positively with their faculties because of their depravity. Mm-hmm. But if there's a calling that inevitably leads to justification, as we see here in the text, that has to be a special type of call for those people. Does that make sense? Any thoughts or questions on how our our sinfulness, our depravity, links with the need for uh, an effectual call to to pull us out of the the depths of our sin? Because otherwise, we we would be able to respond unless we have changed, have been changed. We talk about regeneration, uh, new birth, being made new. Those are Necessary prerequisites to salvation. But I mean, there have been, like mentioned at the beginning, lots of disagreements throughout history, like 
John Wesley would say that God uh-huh. has spread the same calling and love evenly on everybody. And then it's up to man to respond. But that is a semi-Pelagian view of yeah. man's depravity. I mean, that assumes that it's just totally, the ball's totally in man's court. And he can honor God or choose not to honor God. It's an absolute free choice. But if he is so dead in sin, as scripture describes him, the ball's not in his court. <laughs> uh, he, he cannot choose to honor God with his faculties. And were that to be the case, were we to accept a semi-Pelagian view, then we would have to ask, why is it that we have responded, whereas somebody else hasn't? Why, why are we sitting here in, in church today seeking to honor and worship God, whereas our neighbors are at home um, sleeping in or hanging out? <laughs> that would have to be the implication that we are better in some way, right? That we are uh, smarter or more humble to to take the time to to read God's word or or something that ultimately falls back on us rather than falls back on God uh, having done the work himself. All right. Um, predestined, this takes place uh, before time from God's perspective. Logically speaking, um, he has predestined us. He has predetermined uh, those who he would call, those who he would justify and glorify. Um, this is the the same group of people as following through. We're just continuing to work back through uh, Romans 8. And this comes from a, a broader group of people. So the whole would be all of humanity. And God has chosen some that he wants to predestine, that he wants to predetermine their calling. And he will call and then justify and then glorify those. And so again, were we to um, have a, a slightly, or I guess a largely a different understanding, then we would end up with universalism. That if God has predestined everybody, then everybody would be justified. Everybody would be or called, then justified, then glorified. And what comes before uh, predestined in our text? Foreknew. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's kind of a, a parenthesis there, that Jesus would be the firstborn, the preeminent one, the pro, proto... What is it? Proto, yeah, the prototype. There we go. Um, for, for everybody else. So he would be number one, and um, that's just a parenthesis in there. Uh, 30 says that um, these he also predestined. So same group that were foreknown, were predestined, then called, then justified, then glorified. So um, going back to foreknew, that's a, a big important word that we want to make sure that we have a, a good firm understanding of. And foreknew um, in the Greek, just like in the English, has a, a prefix on it. So it's the two different for and no and in Greek, it's pro and gnosko. So pro is for, and gnosko is knowledge. And if we look at how the Bible uses the word know, it's not just in a, an intellectual sense. There are a, a large swath of people who have an understanding that this foreknowledge is simply foresight, that it's just limited to God's foresight, that he is looking um, from his telescope from heaven into the future to see who is going to respond to him and who is going to choose him 
And those people are the ones that he has decided that he's going to predestine, that he's going to call, he's going to justify, he's going to glorify. A couple of issues with that. First of all, God is omniscient, right? What does omniscience mean? He's everywhere at all times. That's omnipresence, right? Um, Omniscience speaks to the fact that God is all-knowing. So God never learns anything, right? Uh, We can look at the end of Job, Job 38, and look at um, Isaiah 40. It says, who has been my counselor? Who has told me these things? Um, I was just listening to a song with my mom yesterday, um, talking about God calling out Job and saying, were you there when... When I did all these things, when I made the ocean, when um, when I brought forth the mountains, and can you um, change the, the constellations? You can't do those things. You're not God. I am God, and I know everything. I've never learned anything. And so if God were simply to be looking from a telescope from heaven to see who is the one who would uh, choose him, then he would be gaining knowledge. He would be learning. He would be growing. Um and this this word foreknowledge is really deeper than that concept and that aspect of him just um, having foresight in that sense. Well, somebody turn to well, why don't we all turn to Genesis four? We'll look at how this word is used there. Of course, the Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. Hebrew. And the New Testament's written in Greek, but uh, in the Septuagint, this is rendered the same way. The Septuagint's the Greek understanding, or the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. So Genesis 4 and verse 1, and we see more of this idea, this concept of knowing. So Genesis 4.1 says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So when it talks about having relations, it's talking about knowing. Um, some of your versions might say that she, or that he knew his wife. And if not, then it's likely that your uh, footnotes or side notes say the same thing. And so obviously Adam had to do more than foresee his wife to produce a child, right? Um, He knew her in a very personal, very intimate, relational way. And then we see the same thing in verse 17, that Cain had relations with his wife. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. Then verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son. And so knowledge or knowing in the Bible has a, a deeper understanding than uh, simple foresight, but it talks about um, this again personal, intimate relationship that that we have with one another, that uh, we have with God, and God is the one who knows us. In this passage, um, let me see. I'm looking in Matthew seven, verse twenty-one. Um, this is where Jesus is rebuking those who come to him and um, again they are maybe some of these antinomians, some of these free gracers who just say well I'm going to believe intellectually in God and they don't have that transforming trust, that transforming belief in their heart and Jesus says not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Remember, we're talking about the omniscient, all-knowing God of the universe. Of course, he knows them, right? He knew them before they were born. He knit them together in their mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on their head, the day of their birth, the day of their death. Um, But this is talking about an intimate, personal knowledge that God has. And he says, I didn't have that of you. Uh, We talked about the same thing last week, or a couple weeks ago, perhaps, in John 10. Um, verse 27 I think and following yep says my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and right before that says but you did not believe because you are not my sheep so knowledge here is speaking of a personal relationship God knew them because they were his sheep if they were not his sheep then he would not know them in that personal sense and again if we add pro or before on the front of that, then we see that um, God had this love for us. For knowledge can also be understood as for love, that he loved us beforehand, just as Adam loved his wife, just as Cain loved his wife, just as Jesus didn't have a saving love for those who we see in Matthew 7. And he did for the sheep that we see in John 10, 27. So foreknowledge is speaking of forelove and not just foresight that God had looking down the tunnel of time. Any foresight that God had of faith that we put in him was a faith that he himself put there um, in the act of his foreknowledge. Any thoughts or questions or comments? The passage at hand, Romans 8, anybody wants to dispute that it's his knowing of people intimately. Mm-hmm. The passage says those whom he foreknew, not that which he foreknew. Yeah, that's an important distinction. So he's not just looking at um, events that take place. He's not looking at circumstances that unfold. But it's a, a personal pronoun there, that those whom he foreknew, it's talking about individuals and how he knew those people again in a intimate personal loving type of way not just uh, head knowledge of what they would do in the future not to take away from that but it's a, a secondary response to his foreknowing and predestining and calling and choosing and justifying and glorifying ultimately All right. Um, it says that predestined ones were also foreknown. This word, prognosco, in its most basic sense, means to know beforehand. What is the object of God's foreknowledge? Um, again, Jeremy just pointed out that it's a, a personal pronoun, that those who um, are the object of, of this are in view. Those whom he foreknew, individuals. And once again, why is... Why is that significant? Why is it significant that we're talking about personal pronouns here rather than things or events? Individual. 
And there are some who will take a, a corporate view of this and say, well, it's just the the church kind of, um, I can't even think of a word, but kind of off on its own. And then there's Israel with God chosen um, for new Israel in a special personal relational sense that it was different. Um, but that's that's a different view we won't get into. And I think there are lots of problems with that view. And even in that view, uh, if he's just dealing with groups, that group is made up of individuals who have to be put in that group um, by an all-knowing God as well, right? Uh, but yeah, looking at Israel, there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that talk about how God knew Israel and how he set Israel aside, and they were his special, distinct group, his chosen people, right, from amongst uh, a myriad of other nations that weren't special, they weren't known, uh, they weren't called in the same sense that Israel was, and there's some crossover there with the church. Israel is not the church, there is a future for Israel, but there's... um, that same kind of choosing aspect with the church and those who are adopted into God's family as there was with Israel. All right, Jeremiah 1.5, Galatians 1.15. Can we get somebody to look up those, please? Who's got Jeremiah? All right, and Galatians. All right, thanks, Andy. All right, whenever you got it, whoever's first. Jeremiah 1.5. The Lord says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. All right. Foreknowledge, right? He didn't learn who he was afterwards. He knew him beforehand. In Galatians 1.15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Alright. Not immediately consult the question. No, that's good. Alright, so uh, this is Paul talking and when was he set apart? From his mother's womb, right? So before anything took place, before he um, rose up against Christ church before he met Christ on that road to Damascus he was already set apart even from his mother's womb um, and again like you read in oh it's at the end and called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles so again God is the one who is doing the work there revealing his son uh, to others to the Gentiles through the work of Paul can I try to stump the teacher with a philosophical question? No. Thanks for asking, though. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what? Take him out. <laughs> so when Paul then went on to live a life uh, persecuting Christians, uh, doing things for his own pride, fame, glory, uh, living as a rebellious, wicked, sinful man, was he hellbound? No. I don't think so. He was condemned. So when we sing, as I ran my hellbound race and all I have is Christ, uh, we're teaching, we're singing uh, a false doctrine. Oh, he's just being rude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should not sing that song. <laughs> no, it's 
a, a race that is marked by as as a hellbound one, right? Look again at John 3, that those who do the works of the devil are of the devil. If we're doing the works of God, then we aren't living our lives as if we are belong to God, as if we have been adopted. We are living lives that are incongruent with our future state because we have not yet been justified. We haven't been brought into that fold. What? So was the wrath of God abiding on Paul before he was saved? Of course. But he wasn't held up? That's right. Next. <laughs> You're looking at all catimorphous. Yeah. <laughs> Set apart, right? John 3 we were called before him. The one who doesn't believe in the Son is condemned already. The one who doesn't obey him. Yeah. In 36, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we will leave that tension no, there. Now we answered that question. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I told you, we're not going to have perfect answers, all right? <laughs> all right. Each of the three passages speak of God knowing the individual before their earthly existence. Do any of them speak of the individual knowing God beforehand? Obviously, that's impossible, right? We can't know God before we've been formed, before we have a mind to know God. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and there's no scriptural support here for that. Come back next week, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, we're actually going to be doing our Sunday school class with the other class. We're going to be joining in there, and we'll talk about that very thing, pre-existence. And also, whether or not... Uh, we need to abstain from blood up to and including blood transfusions. So it'll be interesting. <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah. That people will teach and defend using scripture. That God told us to abstain from blood. Not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. So we'll do that next week. So, yes. We are never spoken of knowing God beforehand. All right, the summary of Romans 8, man is passive in all pre-earthly activity listed here and in the rest of scripture. Um, we can't do anything actively until we exist, right? That should be pretty apparent for everybody in this class, but again, not for all of our neighbors because people do have the twisted understanding of pre-existence that we existed before we came here and we chose to uh, put ourselves under God's test to take on this world. Uh, okay. A group of individuals from the whole is predestined and granted the other events. Yeah. Is it? Oh. And then it goes on from there, right? No, okay. It's, it's it for this slide. Oh, the other events within that, yeah. that chain of events. Um, so, being called, being justified, being glorified. All right, why would God choose those particular individuals? Why would he foreknow only them? That's a big question, big thought. Any responses? Because he's sovereign. He's he's the potter or the clay. He's the creator or the creation. That's how, not why. Because he wants to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. 
Anybody got a better answer than that? Jim does. I have a question. Uh, Are you saying is it better than Jeremy's question? God only knows the people that He uh, predestined. He doesn't know the sinner. In that saving sense of the word, yes. In that very uh, intimate, personal, loving relationship, God only knows those who He will save. Again, of course, He knows the number of hairs on our head, right? He knows the movements of every person. He knows the choices and decisions that everybody's going to make. But in the sense that Adam only knew his wife, then, yeah, God only had that personal, intimate knowledge, that familial relationship with those who would say, yes. So are you saying all that are called are saved? Yes. That's what Romans 8, 20 through 30 teaches. Yep. But isn't there a verse that says many are called, few respond? That's a different aspect of call. So the effectual call that we're talking about in Romans 8, the actual receiving and uh, responding to that call is only for those who he foreknew. If we're called, we don't have a choice. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Other thoughts or questions? (laughs) Was there a... Just as our glorification is sure, that chain is presented in Romans 8, 20 through 30, are are being foreknown by God and being called by God and being justified by God, all that is sure too. It's the same group of people all the way through. And again, there are people who would say no, but I would say yes. So... What does repentance have to do with it? That is us responding to God. That's the actual outworking of that justification in time as God has allowed us to to come to him as he has drawn us to himself. Uh, John 6 says that um, all that the Father has given to, to Jesus will come to him, right? So that seems to say to me that we will respond if he has called us beforehand. Um, and it's granted by God. Paul's letter to Timothy, God grants repentance, which leads to the knowledge of the truth. And then, uh, let's look at John real quick. John 1.12 was one of the first verses that I memorized in Bible school. That's kind of a popular one. Anybody know John 1.12? Jerry knows John 1.12. Given the right to teach him. Yeah. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, that certainly seems like we're doing something there, right? That's speaking to that repentance that you talked of, our response to God, that uh, we are receiving him. These are active verbs that are placed upon man, right? As many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on his name. So that's certainly speaking to the responsibility of man, that we are to believe on him, we are to receive him. But if we keep going on, verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God is the one who had that desire that we would be born in him, born again to a living hope and a sure salvation in him, right? Um, That doesn't mean that we don't believe, we don't respond. It's 
both and again first John we love him because he first loved us so I think that he has given us the ability to respond to him he has given us the faith that he requires for salvation but when you say us you're meaning believers and those believers who he is, whom he is predestined who, yes because yeah. he doesn't give that to those the select few right that he has selected and again that's why we come to this question why has God only chosen particular individuals because that is indeed a, a difficult question. You got more, Jim, or anybody else? I don't want to argue. <laughs> uh, it's okay. It's a difference of opinion, and I think it's certainly okay in this area. It's not a primary doctrine that we need to divide over, for sure. <laughs> I've, All right. I've just always been taught the calling is if you've heard the gospel, you've been called. Yeah, and we would, again, make a distinction between a general call and an effectual call. Because I think otherwise you would have to expect everybody who hears the gospel to be called. If you take that same understanding and you apply it to this passage in Romans 8, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. If we have an understanding of general calling there, then that means that everybody who hears the gospel would be justified. And obviously, we wouldn't hold to that, right? But then I go back to John 1.12. As many as receive him. But well, how do they how, receive him? Yeah. Was it, if we take the view of sin that they're dead, God has to work in them before they can receive him. His spirit quickens them. Right. And he, the Spirit only quickens those whom he wills. He doesn't quicken all people. And yeah, I think that's that it. according to his purpose. Yeah. Yeah, Ephesians 1. Now let's turn to Ephesians 1. Because I think that's about as close as we can get to understanding why God chose those particular individuals. Um, I want to look at two particular verses, but this is just one big run-on sentence. So um, let's start in verse 5. It says that he, well, at the end of verse 4, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So he did this according to the kind intention of his will. Now why, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace? And that might not be a satisfying answer, but I think that's the best answer we can give, that it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Um, and again, you can see that same concept um, that it's according to his will down in verse 11. It says, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So it was his purpose... It was after the counsel of his will. It was for his will and to the praise of his glory. And we aren't God. We can't enter the mind of God. We can't know why it is that he chose some and not others. Uh, we can look at, I think it's Deuteronomy 7.7 that talks about how God chose Israel because he loved them. And then you ask, well, why did he love Israel? Because he chose to. <laughs> it's 
we we can't understand the mind of God. He just he chose some to be saved, and he didn't choose everybody to be saved. But he's not obligated to. That would be to expect God to show grace and mercy to us when we don't have any right to expect that from anybody, let alone God. Um, you don't just walk up to some random guy on the street and say, hey, why didn't you give me 20 bucks? Because you don't deserve that 20 bucks, right? And as children of wrath, as enemies of God, we deserve an eternal punishment in hell because we've sinned against an eternal God. And so for us to stand up and ask the potter, why did you make me this way, is scary territory. Um, we just have to rest in the fact that he chose us because he decided to for the the praise of his glory. And there's some tension there, and we're not always comfortable with that, but that's where scripture leaves us, where we have to stay. Any thoughts or questions as we wrap up? We won't have a chance to really get into Ephesians 1 this morning, but we'll do that next week. satisfied with that, but that's okay. We can be satisfied in the fact that God will be glorified in our salvation as well as the the damnation of those who aren't his, which is a thought that is hard to grasp, but he is pleased even in the destruction of the wicked. So Yeah. What passage is that? Do you remember? Yeah, it's in the Bible. <laughs> That's all we need to know. <laughs> all right. Cool. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. We know that your word is truth. We pray that you'll help us to to have a better understanding of your word and that we would continue to speak your word in truth until we grow up in all things uh, in him who is the head, even Christ. God, help us to um, not shape our doctrine of uh, of our our sharing of your faith, of our evangelism, based upon our doctrine of soteriology. That we would be faithful to proclaim your truth, knowing that you have set aside those, you have called those who you have willed for the praise of your glory, and that you have used us as the means of. Uh, sharing that truth with a world that is lost and depraved and in need of a savior. God, we thank you that you have, for whatever unknown reason to us, chosen to reveal to us the truth of your gospel, that you have died and risen and ascended into heaven. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells us. We pray that you would uh, lead and guide and um, just enable us to worship you this morning, that you would be pleased with our worship and you would open up our minds to to understand you more fully. Pray this in your name, amen.